My name is Dr. Niall Jefferson, and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. Today, my guest expert is Associate Professor Catherine Berman, and our topic of discussion today will be paediatric cochlear implantation. Professor Berman performed her fellowship at Westmead Children's Hospital with Professor Bill Gibson and has a particular interest in deafness, adult and paediatric cochlear implantation and hearing rehabilitation. She is currently the Deputy Medical Director of the Sydney Cochlear Implant Centre and is a Director on the Board of the Royal Institute of Deaf and Blind. She has presented and published both nationally and internationally on the topic and it's a pleasure to talk with you today. How are you, Professor? Uh, Well, thanks, Niall. Thank you for having me. So let's begin. How common is paediatric deafness? Uh, Paediatric deafness is reasonably common. Um, It depends on the severity as to the incidence. So we think maybe one in a thousand children are born with profound hearing loss and maybe two in a thousand children with a lesser degree of hearing loss. But over the first two decades of life, that number of children become either profoundly deaf and also then mild to severe hearing loss as well. So we have certainly in Australia newborn hearing screening What is that um, from an Australian perspective? Different states have had different types of newborn screening, but here in New South Wales we've had the automated ABR screening. So children are uh, screened at about 98% uh, picked up for screening and they have the automated ABR system where it only takes a few moments. Electro recordings are uh, attached to just in front of the ears and on top of the head, and then they can see if the child's ABR will fit into a pattern, which then is a pass, and if it doesn't fit into that preformed pattern, it's a refer, and the thought is that you're picking up children with hearing loss uh, that is a mild level and worse with the automated ABR screening. I understand there are other ways of doing screening. Um, What other ways are there? So the other common way is the autoacoustic emissions with the thought that if autoacoustic emissions are absent, they represent activity from the outer hair cells, that that's the most common cause of hearing loss is both an inner and outer hair cell. So you'd be picking up most kids. But unfortunately, with the autoacoustic emissions screening system, you may well falsely reassure parents of children with auditory neuropathy spectrum disorder where in that group they can have true hearing loss but in fact their autoacoustic emissions are present. Someone gets a refer, what happens to them after that? Uh, here in our state they're then sent to one of the major paediatric centres and they have uh, a proper workup with a full diagnostic ABR. They'll have uh, high, t- high uh, frequency timps, uh, tympanometry, steady state evoked potentials and autoacoustic emissions. Following that, someone's identified with a a sensory neural hearing loss. What happens to them after that? Look, it's quite variable, and I guess this is where the uh, path is determined to some degree by the parents and also to some degree by the system that they fall into and some degree by luck. So children will uh, be referred here in, uh, in Australia to Australian Hearing Uh, which is a nationwide uh, provider of hearing aids for children. They're then given the Choices Booklet, which is actually available on their website, and it's a great resource for people to look at information on hearing aids and deafness in children. Most parents will then be fitted with hearing aids, and for some, the kids will then uh, go towards cochlear implants, but we'll talk about that 
um, in a moment. And they'll also sign up with an early intervention program. And there's a number of different programs available in different states that will help the children with um, hearing loss to maximise their listening abilities and therefore learn to speak as well. You mentioned um, an early intervention environment. Who are the members within that team typically? Look, there's early intervention services, which uh, are aimed at teaching children. A lot of the kids are looked after by ENT surgeons um, who may well investigate the child for causes of hearing loss. And also paediatricians may well be involved in investigating the child for the cause of hearing loss. And for some families, they don't want to know the cause. They just want to get on with treating the issue. And for other parents, they're keen to know, if possible, why their child was deaf. In relation to investigations, there's certainly a very wide variety of investigations that can be performed, but if, if you were to consider the routine investigations for a child that's been referred with a hearing loss outside of the audiometric tests that we've discussed, mm. what would they typically involve? Look, it's common to perform blood tests because they're reasonably easy and they're looking for causes of hearing loss that may well have been perinatal. So maybe um, infection when mum was uh, pregnant that may well have ramifications for the prognosis of the child's um, hearing that some cases like C, uh, CMV, cyclomegalovirus, can give you a progressive loss uh, and it can be associated sometimes with additional disabilities. So blood tests are taken, typically looking at the torch teeters, um, thyroid function tests, EUC, full blood count often. And then uh, in paediatrics, we do do autoimmune sort of screening like with CRP and further testing if required, but that's normally not a huge component. They can also have PCR performed on their Guthrie blood spot test to try and look at whether CMV was present at time of birth because sometimes uh, we're seeing these children down the track and you don't know if CMV uh, is picked up in their system, whether that was acquired after birth or preoperatively. I think one of the most useful tests is an MRI scan because that can show us the structure and in up to 30% of children, the structure of the inner ear may well be abnormal. And in these kids, we're really looking for, is there an auditory nerve in the profound hearing loss cases? Do they have large vestibular aqueduct, which is something that we then need to counsel them about um, contact sports and also whether the hearing is more likely to progressively deteriorate or, or not. For the kids with more severe to profound hearing loss, um, an ECG is performed uh, to just exclude uh, Gerval-Lang-Nielsen syndrome. Getting to the to the meat of the of the discussion, what are the current indications for paediatric cochlear implantation? Look, that's a, a great question, and I think it's something that will keep changing uh, with time. So. A very simplified version is when hearing aids are not enough, then we consider a cochlear implant. And as hearing aid technology gets better, then sometimes the indication changes. And as cochlear implant technology and the outcomes get better, then again, the threshold of when we step in with a cochlear implant um, is at an earlier stage of hearing loss. So, you know, basically we expect that for the children they should be able to hear all the ling sounds across the speech range uh, with their hearing aids. And if they're missing out on some of those, especially the high frequency sounds, then hearing aids are indicated, uh, then cochlear implants are indicated. 
Traditionally, we always thought cochlear implants would be uh, would be just useful in profoundly deaf kids, but now we're in fact finding benefit in children with even normal down to profound hearing loss, or uh, with residual hearing being um, uh, preserved, or children more in that severe range that are just not hearing enough in background noise and benefit greatly with a cochlear implant. So that that um, indication does keep changing and. I think too sometimes we just have to see how the children are performing with their uh, hearing aids. For the deafer you are, the easier the decision is, and for those borderline cases, it's a it's a matter of getting um, a lot of functional um, information on how they're going, uh, whether they're hearing the Ling sounds in environment, background noise in different environments, etc. In a way, we've covered some of the indications in relation to uh, cochlear implantation. Are there contraindications? Look, a cochlear implant requires a cochlear to be present and an auditory nerve to take that information. So I think we need to know from the anatomy that there's something there to carry that information. It's interestingly, uh, it's interesting to see that a number of patients will have, you know, maybe no auditory nerve seen on their MRI scan. But if we do a preoperative test of transtympanic um, electrical auditory brainstem testing, we can actually see some small response. And in those patients, it might be worthwhile then offering a cochlear implant because we know that there are some auditory nerves running between the cochlear and the brainstem, even though we can't see it on the MRI scan. I think the big thing when you think about contraindications is just to make sure that parents' expectations are realistic. Um, a child born today if they're implanted under 12 months and they're otherwise normal, would expect to have normal language and go to a normal school. But we know that up to 30% of our kids with with cochlear implants have additional needs. And for some of those, um, verbal language is not going to be a realistic outcome, but they may well get benefit with environmental sound. And so the big thing, I think, with cochlear implants is uh, realistic expectations and then just making sure from the anatomy that there is an auditory nerve present or from electrophysiological testing that there's something there to carry that electrical signal. In, in some ways, much like the indications for cochlear implantation, the age at which we seem to implanting uh, seem to implant seems to be changing as well. Mm. At what age do you recommend implanting? Yeah. Look, we're very lucky with neonatal hearing screening, the age that we can implant now has really dropped. So when I first started doing cochlear implants, we didn't have neonatal hearing screening. We thought we were doing brilliantly to be able to catch kids at about age two, and often we were implanting kids at age four or five, which was very late. Now with neonatal hearing screening, we can be very confident of their hearing level at one month of age. The youngest child I've implanted was three months old, and I think routinely we like to implant from about five months onwards. I think as technology gets better and better and people become more comfortable with the cochlear implant, we may well be routinely doing them in that under six-month age group. And what we know from a brain plasticity point of view is the younger you are, the more we're harnessing that neuroplasticity. So a young age does make sense. We've talked about uh, imaging, certainly, and the importance of making sure that you've got the anatomy in order to uh, be able to get benefit from cochlear implant. Are there other pre-operative considerations that you have in mind um, as part of your planning? So the pre-operative considerations are informed consent, that families and children have an understanding of what they're going to get out of a cochlear implant and what's involved in learning to listen through a cochlear implant. It's not an instant cure. It takes time for the brain to adapt to that digital signal. 
And the children need to understand that they need to practice listening to be able to get the most out of their implant. And over time, it will end up sounding as natural as their uh, natural hearing was. As mentioned before, we really want to know what, what is there in the anatomy. So it's crucial to have an MRI scan and know that there's a auditory nerve. And in the complex cases where there's abnormalities, I like to have a CT scan as well uh, to know where the round window is, to know where our landmarks in are. For cases like charge syndrome, sometimes there's no round window or oval window, and you may well need image guidance to be able to find your way into the cochlea. Uh, for children too, we need to have an expectation when they're very young that we don't know if they have additional needs and we need to explain to families that our expectation is that children will learn to speak normally and go to a normal school. But of course, if there's additional needs present, that's going to have an influence on their language outcomes. In addition to what we've already discussed, is there anything else intraoperatively that we need to consider? So here in Australia, we have immun an immunisation um, schedule. But we like to have the kids covered for what's available against meningitis. So the children under two will have Prevnar at two, four and six months routinely. Um, and so when we come to a cochlear implant, they've already got some pneumococcal uh, cover. Um, the children have meningococcal at 12 months. And so the children under 12 months of age, we normally give a meningococcal uh, vaccination to on the table and then they would have their normal boost at 12 months because my understanding is that it doesn't last if it's given under 12 months. I know in the States they often give it to them two weeks beforehand so that they have time to have complete cover uh, at time of surgery. Here in Australia we haven't had anybody who's had meningitis with a cochlear implant so we generally tend to do it on the table um, and then at least we know it's been done. Intraoperatively, uh what are the risks in relation to surgery? With patients, I go through a three-page handout uh, detailing every risk I could think of. But the main risks um, are, of course, the facial nerve, and that's why we use the facial nerve monitor to ensure that the facial nerve is not damaged. Uh, most children are not dizzy with a cochlear implant, but children with large vestibular aqueduct syndrome are more likely to be dizzy. And my experience has been about 50% of those kids will be dizzy, but surprisingly, not all of them are. The quarter tympani, of course, is at risk, and I think as surgeons we need to be very careful to preserve it, especially as we're now moving into bilateral cases much more frequently. And then a big thing is we want to avoid infection. So we use a very careful technique in theatre to ensure that we're not touching the uh, skin. Children are given intravenous antibiotics during the operation and then postoperatively they're given antibiotics for a week and they're asked to keep the wound dry and the steri-strips steri -strips intact for a week. You mentioned large vestibular aqueduct. Intraoperatively, if you do get a gusher, how do you manage it? So with a gusher, you just sit back and relax. So wait for the CSF to stop pounding out of the uh, round window uh, incision or the cochleostomy that you've done. Once the, once the fluid has slowed down and you can actually see the opening into the cochlea, then we just pop the implant in. And then I like to actually pack a little bit of muscle around the array going into either your round window or into your cochleostomy to try and really ensure that we seal it. In these cases, I often put a bit more muscle around the array 
And if it was a very big gusher, then I'll also use Tissil. But I've found that generally if you tuck a little bit of muscle down next to the electrode and, and really seal it off at the um, opening into the cochlea, that works very well. Your implants in, what's the role of testing at this point in time? So we perform intraoperative testing, and I guess we're very lucky at uh, the Sydney Cochlear Implant Centre where we routinely do electrical ABR testing, and also the Royal Institute for Deaf and Blind Children does that too. So we do impedance, and so that's to make sure that the electrodes are all working. We always have a backup electrode array in theatre so that if the implant's found to have faulty electrodes, we'll change it at time of surgery before the patient wakes up. We then do NRT testing or ART testing, depending on the device type, and that's great because it shows that the cochlear implant's working and it gives um, the audiologist a uh, first step in setting the map postoperatively. We can do electrical ABR testing, um, and that's very useful in that, especially in the tricky cases where there's a small nerve or where, if the child has additional needs, we can really see the brain waveform. So we can see if it's a normal ABR um, waveform or if it's broader and you might want a slower stimulation rate. We also can see if the facial nerve is kicking in. Uh, so it gives us an idea of what current level is stimulating the facial nerve so that we can be careful to stay under that with our mapping postoperatively. And from the shape of the ABR, we can then give counselling to families a little bit more as to whether the expectations are that they're clear waveforms and we know that the child's going to hear quite clearly or whether the waveforms are a little poorer than normal and so maybe their outcomes are going to be a little more difficult. What then are your post-operative instructions outside of the oral antibiotics which you mentioned? So we ask the patients to keep the wound absolutely dry for the week and either myself or the GP will check the ear in about a week's time make sure that there's no infection uh, in the wound or in the middle ear. Um, we ask the patients not to blow their nose especially when we're using the very fine array and the hearing preservation techniques because we want time for that to have the scar tissue hold it in place and we warn patients that the ear may well swell and move forward and then it comes back to normal within a week when we normally see them and also that they may well have a little bit of a dribble of blood from the nose uh, especially if they're lying on their face and that's just the blood in the middle ear and the mastoid dissolving and coming down the eustachian tube and if they sleep um, head head down then it will come out the nose. Implants in, child's gone home, what happens next? So normally the kids keep the wound dry. At our institution they generally stay overnight in a 23-hour ward. Having said that, children with a second side implant are often going home the same day of surgery and I think we'll probably be moving more to the American system of day-only cochlear implants. The child then normally is followed up by myself or their GP if they live far away about a week later and just to check that the wound has healed nicely and that there's no infection. They're generally switched on uh, where the mapping is turned on for the first time uh, at one to two weeks postoperatively and then as the map gets more stable their early intervention with the habilitationist takes over more of the time um, in their weekly sessions. Over the long term they are then mapped every six months and more of their habilitation sessions are taken over by their early intervention program, working with the child, just teaching them to listen and teaching them to uh, speak. 
You mentioned earlier about the fact that if we implant children uh, under one successfully, that they can expect normal speech-language development. What are the overall long-term expectations if we don't get to implant them before the age of one? Look, we've seen from our historical experience that language is often a little further delayed. So kids are often not up to their peers when they go to school. Um, And so more uh, early intervention needs to be done to catch these children up. So the best thing is if we can implant them at a young age, and that doesn't necessarily mean that all kids with hearing loss need a cochlear implant as long as we're fitting them with hearing aids appropriately and then for some of those kids they swap across to a cochlear implant at an older age but they've had adequate hearing younger with their hearing aids. It's interesting now we've we've solved one problem with the neuroplasticity and implanting kids really young and they seem to be doing really well and then we find that then early on in school about age sort of seven or eight they're starting to struggle again and I think that might be because of the background noise of school And maybe they've had that preschool early intervention with speech therapy and teachers of the deaf, but that's then declined once they're at school because everybody thinks that they've caught up and they're fine. And I think we'll find that these kids will actually do better if we give them a bit more support then once they're in the school environment. And some studies have suggested that these kids should be supported right up to 16, 17 with quite intensive um, language therapy, which... I guess it depends on different kids, but we're only really teasing out how to best achieve um, their language outcomes in this older age group now. How long does a cochlear implant survive? Look, my understanding is that it's made with material that should last about 70 years in the body. Most companies will warranty it for 10 years, and I guess... It's interesting, with technology changing so much, I doubt that anybody will be still using their implants 70 years hence because we'll just have better and better things, which may well include supranormal hearing through a cochlear implant. But at this stage, you know, there's certainly people in our program that have had their cochlear implant for 25 years and they're still using it, but... uh, Technology keeps improving. Most of the technological advances have been with the speech processes, and that's where we've had the really big improvements where when I first started, we thought we were doing really well to get kids up to an aided level of about 45 decibels, and now we reliably get them up in the 20 to 30 decibel range uh, through an aided cochlear implant audiogram. I think with new technology, we'll be reliably getting them well into the normal speech range and who knows, maybe even better than... um, the normal speech range in the future. What are the future uh, directions for cochlear implantation? Where are we going? Look, I think it's, again, an exciting time. Um, there's work looking at uh, eluding electrodes, so we may well be able to have uh, steroids to preserve hearing, or maybe in the future there'll be neurotrophic factors that can stimulate uh, hair cell or keep auditory nerves uh, alive. Um, certainly people are working on having something completely underneath the skin and I think that everybody's moving to smaller speech processes but if we can have something underneath the skin I think um, patients would really appreciate that. We mentioned about the speech perception thresholds just getting better and better with each um, generation of speech processes and I think that's something that will continue to improve and that's where that threshold of where we go up to with a hearing aid and then where a cochlear implant is indicated keeps changing because hearing aids keep getting better with digital technology but so do cochlear implants um, and so that that 
threshold for change keeps keeps changing, um, but that's an exciting thing. From hearing preservation surgery point of view, there's a lot of research looking at what we can do to preserve hearing and we've solved some of the clues but we haven't solved all of the issues and I hope that in the future we'll be able to reliably um, keep everybody's hearing so that patients with normal to profound hearing loss can happily have a cochlear implant and, and use their normal hearing in the low frequencies. And then I guess the ultimate thing will be uh, regrowing hair cells and, uh, and auditory nerve fibres to be able to connect to those hair cells. It's an exciting time. The last thing that we'll finish up with is the final word. The final word is an opportunity for you to highlight something that we've discussed that really captures the essence of um, paediatric cochlear implantation and the discussion on that, or maybe covers something that we haven't discussed uh, but you think is important in a discussion in relation to paediatric cochlear implantation. So I'll hand it over to you for the final word. The cochlear implantation, especially in paediatrics, is a wonderful privilege where we can change people's lives I was about to say profoundly, but in a, in a major way. And I guess the indications keep growing. And one of the things we haven't touched on today um, is the unilateral hearing loss kids. And, and that's becoming more of an indication for children to either have a cochlear implant or a Baha to have some sound so that they don't have the head shadow effect. And with a cochlear implant, they can also then have uh, sound stimulating the deaf ear and get the advantage of two ears. So with cochlear implants, we've really learnt that two ears are better than one, whether it's two cochlear implants, whether it's a cochlear implant and a hearing aid, but it really helps in the real world, which is noisy, uh, and in a child's real world, which is generally in a school environment, which is very noisy. So that's an exciting area that we're learning more and more about. Thank you so much uh, for your time today, uh, Professor. Um, Thanks for listening to this podcast. Uh, you can find this and other podcasts at iTunes, free for download. You can look at the website, entexpertopinion.com, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and, of course, uh, email us at entexpertopinion at gmail.com. Thanks very much. Music.